Good morning. Sam uh, asked me to do the reading today, and he said, because the words are really hard. So Sam, whatever I did, I'm sorry. Um, but I'm just going to say them really confidently, and you won't know if I mess up. So woo. the passage is Joshua 17, verse 7, through the end of chapter, which is verse 18. The territory of Manasseh reached from Asher to Michmethath. Oh, man, I was trying to confident. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, okay, territory of Manasseh. Reach from Asher to Michmethath, which is east of Shechem. Then the boundary goes along southward to the inhabitants of Entapua. The land of Tapua belonged to Manasseh, but the town of Tapua on the boundary of Manasseh belonged to the people of Ephraim. Then the boundary went down to the brook Kenah. These cities to the south of the brook, among the cities of Manasseh, belonged to Ephraim. Then the boundary of Manasseh goes on the north side of the brook and, and ends at the sea. The land to the south being Ephraim's, and that to the north being Manasseh's, with the sea forming its boundary. On the north, Asher is reached, and on the east, Issachar. Also in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Bethshean and its villages, and Ibliam and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Endor and its villages, who may have been Ewoks. And <laughs> Star Wars shout out. And the inhabitants of Tanakh and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, the third of Naphath. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its furthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Good morning. I am not Tommy, as you can tell, obviously, by the lack of beard. That's usually what gives it away. I actually came across a, a quote uh, by G.K. Chesterton. Uh, it says, uh, you cannot grow a beard in a moment of passion, which kind of bummed me out because I, I can't grow a beard at all. So, <laughs> like, whenever November comes around, I get really, like, stressed out and bummed out. Like, why don't you grow a beard, Sam? Why don't you grow? Okay. <laughs> so my name is Sam. I uh, serve uh, within the elder team, and uh, at, Tom at Pastor Tommy's request, uh, I preach every now and then. So let me see if this thing works. Okay. Can I control it? Ta -da. Okay. So um, let's pray and get started. So Father God, we love you. We just thank you, Lord, for your community. We thank you, Lord, for the, your uh, for your church. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your son, Jesus. I just appreciate Lord, all that you do, the things that we think we know that you're doing for us and, and all that you do beyond, Lord, what we understand, that what we can't understand fully, oh, Father. So we appreciate your, your love for us, 
um, despite our own sinfulness, despite our own um, where we forget how good you are. So, Father God, I ask, Lord, as we uh, go through uh, this chapter uh, today, let, us, let it be a reminder of how good you are, how awesome you are, and how much of a love you have for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay. So, uh, we're not doing Genesis today. We're doing Joshua. Um, when Jacob's name was changed uh, to Israel, in a way, here was this chosen nation. Israel, it means prevailing with God, or you have struggled with man and God and have overcome. So Israel's 12 sons become 12 tribes, uh, but Manasseh and Ephraim were actually Joseph's children, so they were actually grandchildren of Israel. Um, so remember that, that this was part of this promise of, of Abraham and his offspring being many nations, right? Remember God telling him in uh, chapter 12 and chapter 17 in Genesis where, you know, I'm going to make your descendants into many, many nations. But there was a promise of a great nation, one nation without the S, uh, that God spoke of, and this specific nation were, was the one that he would have a special covenant with, which is the people of Israel. So before this passage about the half-tribe of Manasseh, the descendants of Israel, which were very numerous, were freed from slavery under the Egyptians, led from Moses, they were freed, and they also wandered in the desert for about 40 years. Uh, until all those who came out of the Egypt sort of died off, mainly due to their disobedience and lack of faith in God. And so here it is, and God, let's, let's try this again with this lot, and hopefully you're not cookie as your parents. And Moses and then Joshua are leading the people of God into the promised land. So this narrative provides us with few lessons, and we'll talk about more about what God was trying to do with the half-tribe of Manasseh and their response to Joshua's direction. So, by the way, they're called the half-tribe of Manasseh because they were numerous. They, they were in both sides of the Jordan River, in the east and the west. They took a, quite a bit of chunk uh, when, when Joshua was sort of giving out the different parts of the land of where the different tribes will be. And they actually complained to Joshua that they needed more land. And Joshua diplomatically said, hey, you know, you have a lot of people. You have, you're strong militarily. Go and conquer more, the Canaanites and sort of drive them out of the land. Now, one of the things that, that, that uh, they were charged to do was to drive out the Canaanites. And these Canaanites were made up of several people groups, and one including was the Amorites. Canaanites was just terrible, terrible people. And... Uh, you know, they did uh, ritual prostitution, child sacrifices, um, and actually in Genesis 15, if you recall, I, I didn't recall, I was looking at this and then I remembered. Uh, Genesis 15, where, where God talked to Abraham about, uh, about the judgment toward the Amorites uh, and talking about the promised land that was at hand. So in this way, God's giving the promised land to the people of Israel, but also bringing judgment to the Canaanites that lived on this land and did wicked and evil things. So, unfortunately, Israel just did not do so well. They, they didn't do the whole you know, driving out the Canaanites thing. Um, 
in terms of the whole of Israel, as well as the half-tribe of Manasseh. They kind of sucked at it as well. And Joshua actually warns before his own passing, hey, you need to do this or bad stuff is going to happen. You need to get this done. We see in Judges, let me see, do I? All right, I already went to this, sorry. Judges chapter 1, verse 27 to 28 uh, Manasseh did not drive the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. So not only did they not drive out the Canaanites, when they grew stronger, as people, and militarily, they actually forced the Canaanites in slavery, which is kind of odd if you think about it, because, you know, that's what the Egyptians did there to their parents. So, putting them in forced labor, becoming like the people that forced their ancestors, their ancestors to do hard labor, and what eventually happened was that they married the Canaanites and took in their gods. New generation rose who forgot what God did for them. And after Joshua passed, the elders who were with the Joshua and, so, who, and the, the people that sort of knew uh, what God did for them, for the whole nation, they sort of passed. And they sort of, new generation came about and they totally forgot who Yahweh was and what God did for them. And they started deteriorating and the consequences of the evil in the land just consumes them. Uh, we see in Judges chapter two, verse is that it? Judges chapter two, verse ten to thirteen. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their father. Who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord's anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. We also see, after the era of the judges, King Solomon married foreign women and built places in worship. And Solomon built a high place in Chemosh, abomination of Moab, and for the Molech, abomination of the Amorites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all the foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to the gods. So there is this continuous deterioration there. And then we see, even several hundred years later, in Jeremiah chapter 32, where the people of Israel and in Judah offering child sacrifices to Molech just as those who previous did. So it's really unfortunate. You understand why God wanted to drive out the Canaanites and make sure that they did not influence Israel because he knew they would do the same evil that they previously done. So there's some things I think we can learn from this narrative. And one of the things that struck out to me was for the people of God to be different and to be set apart. Part of the calling for us is to be countercultural. 
Different than our current way of the world. Moving the opposite spirit of the culture. Whatever it may be. This is part of our spiritual warfare or a cosmic warfare perspective. Um, in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. Over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul makes it clear that there's much more than what is being seen. There's much more than what you're struggling with. There's something that's happening in the spiritual world that we cannot under, we can't see in front of us like physically. And it's something that we should know though so that we can learn to fight and win. We also in see we also see this in a First epistle of John, uh, where John talks about Antichrist, not in terms of the, like, the person Antichrist, but in terms of the spirit of Antichrist. And, and, and the spirit that doesn't acknowledge the truth of Jesus. So in this way, the Antichrist could be whatever within the culture that's either directly or indirectly against Jesus and his message. Now, many times it's not what we think as it is. I think it's sometimes um, it could be ideals. It could be sometimes of our own understanding of personal happiness or sort of this me culture, the selfish culture that does not confess fully who Jesus really is. Or saying that I will follow him, but only to the point where I am just comfortable. If I have to make him Lord over all my life, forget about it. So in terms of being counter-cultural, Jesus was very much so. There's people in the world who think Jesus was just real and gave us a real good talk about goodness of humanity, loving each other. Let's just sit there on the campfire and sing Kumbaya. I don't know why I thought about Kumbaya, but that's what I thought. But there was also very radical and subversive element in the kingdom talk that was very countercultural. One quick example, and it's easy for readers, I think, uh, today to sort of miss the significance of the disabled, of the blind and the lame going to Jesus in the temple. Because within some traditions, they were excluded. Jesus apparently challenges this. And the way the temple was ran and excluded the people. Notice the type of people Jesus healed. The type of people Jesus healed. The lame, the blind. uh, Even the woman who had persistent bleeding. Who was considered ceremonially unclean. Jesus healed. Here Jesus was doing what was very subversive. To what was accepted religiously. And he was very much going against that and saying, come, who are marginalized, come, who are sick, come, who are lame, I will heal you. I will bring you. You are in the kingdom of God. So sometimes we don't think too much of it and don't understand it, but we are in this cosmic warfare, a very spiritual one. And being countercultural is a tool. It's being effective way to do spiritual warfare. Sometimes we think it's just Jesus, me, and coffee in this very hyper-individual type of society. Um, There's a book uh, called uh, Three Battlegrounds 
uh, by Francis Frangipane. I read it, I don't know, 15 years ago. I thought it was good then. I don't know if I think it's good now. But I, I still remember in the preface of uh, the writer telling young pastors and, and uh, young uh, you know, uh, people who are getting into the ministry, um, you have to watch out because we sometimes put the devil in our own little theological box. But we, ha- we don't know that he is. We have to realize that he is an ancient and treacherous foe. I think that was the word that he used, ancient and treacherous foe. It's not something that we have to be scared of, but I think what Francis was trying to challenge us is to wake up and understand and be equipped to the battle and to the warfare that's going on. So I, I, know, I know in the Western world, I, there isn't much talk of the evil one, uh, which maybe that's why the enemy would prefer for us not to say anything about it, right? And keep the focus away from him. But we have to think countercultural, and that is a crucial part in a spiritual warfare. This is something we don't talk too much in the Western church. And, and uh, for some other people, that's all they talk about. I remember uh, one time... Uh, I think it was about 10, 10 years ago when I started a missions youth camp uh, in one of the islands in the Caribbean. And the whole idea was trying to get young Caribbean people to do missions. And the long-term goal was hopefully see a missions movement within the Caribbean people into going back to Africa and sort of uh, do missions in that way, which, you know, which I thought was very powerful from descendants of slaves going back to carry the message of the gospel. Um, but I remember this, this was the first, uh, youth missions camp that we were doing. We had a few different youth groups. I was, it was at around 11 PM and, uh, I was working on the talk that I was going to give tomorrow, the following morning. And one of the staff comes in, Hey Sam, you know, one of the youth pastors, uh, assaulted one of his leaders. I said, what? Okay. Let me check this out. So I, I go out there. I try to find what they were doing and and the, the guy, I mean, he's old. Both of them were uh, about my age. Uh, but they were, the guy who was assaulted was obviously scared. He was trying to go and get out of the campus. And it was a pretty big campus. And he was trying to find the way out and get on a bus and just leave the place. I got them to sit down and talk. And I thought they were going through something. And I thought they were, you know, things were coming and revealed. And they were talking to each other. And for some reason, at the end, they said they all just blamed it on the devil. And by, this was 3 a.m., 2 or 3 a.m., and I said, forget it. I'm just going to sleep because I can't deal with this. So I'm, <laughs> there are some people who don't take responsibilities and blame it all on the devil. Um, and that's not what it's about. I, I think there has to be this balance and understanding of what is going on and for us to be, have this knowledge and understanding, okay? Um, so, I mean, for some people, I think, in some different churches, not just in the Western world or Global South or whatever, I think it is a little bit extreme and it's unhealthy. But let's talk about this cosmic warfare in another context. Um, in the Western world and increasingly everywhere else, many struggles... And it's impacted by consumerism, where we're conditioned to want more and more, consume more and more for our own benefit. Not only is this just about material and stuff, but I think it impacts how we view God 
and it sort of blurs into our relationships. Um, in some sense, I think consumerism deeply influences our view of religion and our view of God. So we consume God, we consume church, we treat it like it's a product or a service out there. And I think I would argue that this is a very anti-kingdom of God. It has an anti-Christ type of element in it. So, first of all, it's, it's like all about me, me, me. What can I get out of this? Uh, you know, what about my satisfaction, my happiness, my material wealth? And, and, and the lines are blurred, I think, sometimes for, for us Christians about being blessed by God. Uh, is, you know, is it God really blessed me with a car or whatever? But, uh, yes, all good and perfect gift is from God. But that does not mean everything that is considered good in this world is good and perfect for us in the kingdom. So you have to make that distinction. This also conditions our mind to be self-entitled. This is my right. This is what is owed to me. I deserve this. This is a very anti-Christ element where we have to be countercultural and move in the opposite spirit because it absolutely stands in the way of Jesus being Lord of all. You can't have Jesus be Lord over just Sunday. You can't have Jesus be Lord of just what I believe about my religion stuff. That's, you know, Buddha, whatever, you know, Allah, whatever. Jesus is Lord here, but everything else in your life in terms of your work ethic, how you deal with business, how you deal with relationships, you have to. It's all encompassing. And sometimes when we think about my rights and, and talking about me and putting myself at the pedestal into some degree, it's, it's in a direct contradiction about making Jesus Lord and seeking kingdom of God. It really gets difficult trying to seek kingdom of God first. So the thinking is, I'm unhappy from unfulfilled desires. The solution is, I'll be happy once those desires are fulfilled. But we know that's not true. Stuff is not going to make you happy. And unfortunately, happiness and self-fulfillment becomes an idol because for many, and maybe you think about yourself as well, or when you're thinking about others, that sometimes it's your own desire and your own desire for happiness is what actually keeps you from being happy. And being totally fulfilled. Blaise Pascal said there's a God-shaped vacuum that cannot be filled with created things. It can only be filled by the creator known through Jesus. So we look at stuff, money, misguided ideas of love to give us happiness and pleasure, but they all fail because we're created for relationship, a healthy, loving relationship with the Father and others. And as Jesus said, we have to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So to seek the kingdom of God doesn't mean to follow religion because God hates religion. It is, it is to be in this loving relationship with God and others. And so there are distinctions very opposite in the way I think the way the kingdom of God is and the kingdom of the world. Kingdom of the world says religion, it's, it's about religion and what you can do to attain your salvation. Kingdom of God is about relationship and trusting that what Jesus has done on the cross 
Kingdom of the world, the security comes from my own finances, my degree, my self-worth. That the kingdom of God is in the relationship with Jesus Christ and the word of God. Kingdom of the world is all about me and my well-being. Kingdom of God is putting others first and being sacrificial. Kingdom of the world is being about being entitled, having the stuff, and doing more stuff, and getting to debt, living beyond our means. Kingdom of God is surrendering our own rights to be generous. Sorry, surrendering our own rights and to be generous with what we have, even if it's very little. And simple living, right? Not living beyond our means. Kingdom of the world is about my own happiness, and sometimes I think even other, people happy, other people's happiness is sort of related to my happiness. But the kingdom of God is sacrifice. Here's Jesus shown on the cross. That's the kingdom of God. So we have to realize the spiritual warfare that's going on and understand that God has set you apart. And by the way, I'm not talking about like, like fake, false, pretentious holiness. Look at me, I'm holy. I'm not talking about like that. Um, God does set us apart to be holy, but holiness is not in a vacuum. And sometimes it's not just about avoiding or refraining from sin or certain vices or the appearance of it. But the holiness is also about doing stuff like loving my neighbors. So you can't be holy all by yourself in a holy island somewhere. It's in the context of relationship as well. Excuse me. I remember past conversations with people in the church, like, how will they know you're different? How will they see your light? And, and it's usually like, well, this was, I guess, in my youth group, so um, I think differently now. But it's, I mean, it's usually around like, don't cuss and drink, you know, not take certain vices. But it's very much visible and external. Uh, but if that's the only way that the other people can tell the difference about you being a follower of Jesus, that is kind of disappointing. I think there's something amazing about Christ's love and what he has shown you, what he has shown me, what he has shown our community. I love, um, I love uh, Eugene Peterson, the message, sometimes. Um, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13 to 17, he talks about this, and he just goes against, uh, not, not, Peter, not Eugene, um, prophet Isaiah. And he said this, Quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand one more. Meaning for this, meaning for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion. While you go right on sinning, when you put on the next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or proud or often you pray, I'll not listen. And do you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces. Your hands are bloody. Go home and wash up. Clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean of your evil doings so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the defenseless. I think I actually prefer that than the ESV or the NASB. So we're called to be countercultural in this way. And we're called 
not to do false religion, what we know, what it's, what's in our heart, what's in our human hearts, because it's so easy for us to gravitate toward what's tangible, what we can see. Uh, so, but within the consumeristic culture, putting off the religiousness in our lives, it's not he who dies with the most toys win. We're called to work for justice, take care of those who can't help themselves, be the voice for those who don't have a voice, sacrifice and be generous. By the way, it doesn't mean stuff. Just having stuff is bad, wealth is bad. That's not what I'm trying to talk about. I, I think to follow Christ doesn't mean you have to give up and just live in poverty but it does mean you have to give up the right to it. You can have it legally. That's fine. But you're giving up the right to it and making Jesus Lord overall in that sense. So you can disagree with me, and that's fine, but that, that is part of making Jesus Lord in your life and, and not having this unhealthy connection and letting what you own own you. So... Um, Back to half-tribe of Manasseh. When I read this, it's not that they didn't drive out the Canaanites because they got lazy. They were afraid. They were scared. They believed that the Canaanites were stronger. They had better weaponry. But also, I mean, it's almost this double standard because once they got strong, they forced the Canaanites into forced labor. And enslaved them, took advantage. They got greedy. And all of these awesomeness that they saw their God do from, you know, or what their ancestors witnessed from, you know, amazing food falling from the sky, uh, skies of pillars and cloud and fire, they still had tough time believing that God was for them, that God was with them. I think it was in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8. Where, where God tells Joshua, you know, I will be there with you. I will go ahead of you. Trust in me. And it's interesting. I, I don't have the verses up here, but um, I, I think uh, God said this at least three times. One in front of Moses, one in front of the other people, and I think privately as well. So, so to Joshua, taking up the mantle from where his uh, Moses was that, I think it was a big challenge and there was a lot of insecurity. And here God is continually assuring. So we see the same type of assurance of God giving to the people of Israel that I am for you, I am here for you, I am doing battle for you, you will win. You just have to do your part, you just have to take responsibility for yourself to some degree, and I'm here, I'll make it happen. You just got to be obeyed, that's it, obedience, right? So, um, unfortunately, though, they didn't do that. It, this reveals their lack of trust in God, and their lack of trust results in their disobedience, and their disobedience eventually uh, sort of caused their descendants in exile. And Israel was supposed to be different. Israel was, you know, even when they became a nation and when they moved from judges or tri tribal leaders or whatnot, uh, they wanted a king, but God was supposed to be their king. That was the point. God was their king, but they wanted a human king and did the whole palace thing, I guess. And, and we see the story of Abraham, and 
all built around trust. Trust in me, the story of Moses and his people walking down the Red Sea, splitting the Red Sea. You know, it's about trusting in, in him. God wanted these people to be different than the others rather than worshiping other gods that was visible to them. Maybe they were taunted. I can't see your God. Your God is not tangible. Why, are you, why does your God doesn't have, uh, you know, idols or wooden stuff and statues? And they were different. Trust in God. You don't need more than that. But our, I think our, sometimes our human hearts does want more. It's, it's always some of God plus additional knowledge. You know, God plus stuff. God plus um, God plus uh, what we can't really have in our minds. And in this sense, we cannot have more than one God in our lives. It's, it's an idolatry. When you put the marriage or other relationships above your relationship to Jesus, there is this sense that meaninglessness and sort of the image of chasing the wind. Ravi Zacharias, and I think this illustrates it, uh, Ravi Zacharias wrote a book called Can Man Live Without God? And this is uh, one of the excerpts. Listen to it, please. One of the most powerful stories I have heard on the nature of the human heart is told by Malcolm Mugridge. Working as a journalist in India, he left his residence one evening to go to a nearby river for a swim. As he entered the water across the river, he saw an Indian woman from the nearby village who had come to have her bath. Mugridge impulsively felt the allurement of the moment and the temptation stormed in his mind. He had lived with this kind of struggle for years, but had somehow fought it off in honor of his commitment to his wife, Kitty. On this occasion, however, he wondered if he could cross the line of marital fidelity. He struggled just for a moment and then swam furiously toward the woman, literally trying to outdistance his conscience, and his mind fed him the fantasy that stolen waters would be sweet. He swam the harder for it. Now he was just about two or three feet away from her, and as he emerged from the water, any emotion that may have gripped him paled in insignificance when compared with the devastation that shattered him as he looked at her. She was old and hideous, and her skin was wrinkled. And worst of all, she was a leper. This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. The experience left Mugridge trembling and muttering under his breath, what a dirty, lecherous woman. But then the rude shock of it dawned upon him. It was not the woman who was lecherous, it was his own heart. It was his own heart. Sometimes we try to change the circumstances, but the problem is, problem is not, you know, not your life. The problem is not your husband, not your wife. The problem is not your work or whatever your situation it may be. It's you and your heart. I came across a fascinating quote uh, from Miloslav Volf. I believe he's uh, Croatian, and he has a, uh, a really good book called Exclusion of Embrace, I think. And... Uh, it's actually not him. His mom said this, and he put it out on Facebook. Uh, we dig in the garbage heaps of our past and miss new things God is creating in the present. 
we dig in the garbage heaps of our past and miss new things God is creating in the present. The question is, do you trust God? It says in James that even the demons believe in one God. Who knew? Demons are monotheists. But beyond believing in God, do you trust him? Do you trust him with your relationships? Do you trust him with your financial well-being? Do you trust him with your future goals? Do you trust him in your marriage? Do you trust him for him to be your God? That's been counterculture in a way. We're going to take communion now. Um, But as we take communion, let's think about this. What, What we're doing in our lives. And the elements, the antichrist elements that's within our minds. The anti kingdom of God elements that's within our own hearts. We're going to take a time of reflection. And I invite you uh, afterwards to take communion and sort of let that truth sink in our own hearts and sort of go through every fiber of our being, of your mind, of your heart. Let's pray. So, Father God... Thank you, Lord, for all that you do. Beyond our own arrogance, beyond our own stupidity, and our own stubbornness, Lord, you're still there in front of us. And we just want to declare, Father, that we trust you. Despite doubts, despite my own sin, We trust you. Help us, oh Father, because we can't do this ourselves. So I ask the Holy Spirit, oh Father, to come and just speak in our hearts, speak in our minds. And as we take the communion, oh Father God, that you will bring uh, reflection in our hearts and our minds and and, uh, revelation in our hearts, oh Father. And compel us to take action, O Father, for what we need to do. We love you, Jesus. We pray. Amen.